This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good morning, and thank you for joining us for Ned Group Investments Insights at 10. My name is Robin Johnson, and my, I am Head of Investments at Ned Group Investments. It's my responsibility to make sure that our portfolio managers are on top of everything that is affecting financial markets locally and overseas. Now, the impact of the global pandemic and congruent lockdowns on economies around the world has, is universal. And yesterday, we saw that the IMF indicated an expectation that the global economy will contract this year in 2020 by 4.9%, which is worse than the previous assessments. Fiscal and monetary response has been unprecedented around the world with interest rates cut rapidly and support packages announced in abundance, striking a consolidated global package by the G20 group of countries at $9 trillion. I'll just let that number sink in. It's incredible. As stated by Tito and Buena yesterday, the COVID-19 economic support package for SA directs 500 billion rand straight at the problem. Again, another incredible and unprecedented number and something more than we've seen from other emerging countries around the world. Now, all of this fiscal and monetary support has prompted a return of appetite for risk assets. And the South African rand climbed back to a new low of 1650 versus the dollar in, in early June. Local bonds have also advanced with the 10-year yield dropping to 8.6%, albeit slightly higher now. And emerging market equities around the world in June have regained some ground against their developed market peers. Today, we have Nikki Weimer, Nedbank's chief economist and a regular favorite speaker for us and all our regular listeners. So many of you recognize that Nikki and her team have incredible understanding and insights with respect to the economic situation in South Africa. And on the back of the interesting supplementary budget review yesterday, we can think of no one better place to provide some considered interpretation of all the information revealed by the Ministry of Finance yesterday. So on that note, Nikki, I'm going to hand over to you and thank you so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure. Hello, everybody. It's great to be here. We are going to quickly talk you through the essence of yesterday's budget and hopefully when all is said and done, you can ask as many questions as you like and we'll try and answer them speedingly as well. And I understand that you're all busy people, so we'll try and wrap this all up in about a half an hour's time. So uh, it really is... uh, a very dismal picture that was painted by Tito Mbueni yesterday, and it isn't an exaggeration. He he wasn't playing some political game in order to ensure that people get the severity of the problem. It is genuinely a serious problem. So we are heading towards a, a fiscal reckoning. Our biggest problem has been a situation where over an extended period of time, We've had relatively poor fiscal management. This is not so much National Treasury's problem as 
it is a case of for over a decade, you had ministers that had their own agendas. Within every department, you had huge amounts of corruption. We also had the infamous uh, state capture event occurring uh, gradually and gaining sort of critical mass throughout the public sector um, during the past decade. And ultimately, we've gotten to this point where just slowly and surely confidence in the private sector has diminished and um, has fallen, fixed investment has started to decline, and the private sector really shrink, leaving only government really as almost the only show in town. And the problem with that, of course, is that uh, government doesn't create wealth. Uh, it lifts off tax revenue generated by your real economy. And if your real economy is shrinking, that is where the problem resides. So let's start the presentation. This is uh, our dilemma. We've got a situation where our economy has really, before COVID-19 even struck, has sort of shrunk has stagnated. We were in technical recession in the second half of last year. Uh, the first quarter of this year is before the lockdown, before COVID-19 really landed in South Africa in any material manner. And despite that, it now looks very likely that we probably shrunk in the first quarter as well. So the second quarter will be even worse. And as a result of that, we have this situation, as Tito called it, where the hippo's jaws are opening wide. And um, you see that budget expenditure as a percentage of the economy is increasing because the rest of the economy is actually shrinking. So government's share of the economy is rising, but the rest of the economy is in trouble. And then because the rest of the economy is in trouble, your budget revenue is actually just hitting south. So you have these, this enormously divergent path. And that gap between revenue and expenditure, of course, has to be financed. And it has to be financed through borrowing. And that means you have an accumulation of debt. This is the very simple story. It's played out in multiple countries, in Argentina, in Brazil, in Greece, and many, many African countries as well, uh, to the point that ultimately we had the IMF's debt forgiveness program in the late 90s, where in essence, really, you just had a situation where debt service costs just took over uh, the entire budget. So we find ourselves in a similar situation and we didn't get here overnight. This is, as I said, it's been a long journey. And as much as government often points to the private sector, sometimes makes the comment uh, that we've heard over the past decade that the private sector is on an investment strike, it really is something government had control over right from the start. And it all started with President Zuma's tenure when essentially uh, we saw the rise of corruption. We saw deliberate attempts really to misdirect state funds to benefit a few and enrich a few at the expense of the whole nation. And it spilled over into state-owned enterprises, very poor governance, very little discipline. And, you know, equally within government, there's been very little control over the past decade over public sector wages. It is now at that point that it eats up almost 46% of government's revenue, and it's literally crowding out the type of expenditure you actually need to make this economy grow. At the same time, we've had a very uncertain and unclear policy environment. 
We've had open debates about some really radical policies over the past decade. Some of them we may have even forgotten, the whole notion of nationalizing the mines. Um, and now we sit with this whole uncertainty as to what will happen to land reform. At this point, it certainly seems like government is determined really to accelerate land reform, not by expropriating pr private land, even though they have changed the constitution, but really by, in essence, making more state land available uh, to pursue this goal. But the bottom line is all of these uncertainties, the, these inefficiencies, poor government uh, delivery, absolutely no effective investment in infrastructure, particularly power infrastructure, has led us to a situation where growth just continued to deteriorate. And on top of this already weak environment in which we find ourselves came COVID-19. And then, of course, as you know, from the 27th of March, we went into 11-5 lockdown where virtually no economic activity was allowed other than the bare essentials. And what we've seen is that that just absolutely killed activity. So National Treasury now faces a situation where revenue is collapsing and they needed to put together a new budget. And of course, your economic growth forecast is the starting point. So in the corner here of this little graph, I show you what we're looking at. We're looking at a situation where in February this year, which if you think about it, is only three and a months or so ago, government was looking at the economy growing at 0.9%, which would not have been spectacular at all. That's very weak indeed. And since then, uh, yesterday, their adjustment was to a contraction of minus 7.2% in GDP growth. I give you here in green our forecast, we've got 7%. And then they expect the economy to grow uh, by 2.6% in 2021. So a bounce off that incredibly low base. So if you drop by 7.2% and you only grow by 2.6% the following year, you have not recouped all of your losses. You haven't bounced back convincingly. You are still at a lower level than you were before the lockdown was imposed and before COVID-19 struck. And we see a similar story, uh, how the economy actually kind of reverts back to trend, which is very weak growth, 1.5% and 1.5% uh, for 2022 and 2023, which is not too far off from ours. We've got a more gradual drift down to uh, trend growth of less than 1.5% by the time we get to 2023. So what was this budget all about? What did it look like? Well, this is the picture. It wasn't a comprehensive budget review that was released. For example, they didn't give us the uh, you know, GDP figures for the fiscal year, which makes it very difficult to generate or calculate some of the ratios you need in order to do so. So the best you can do is really deduct. But these are the numbers they did provide. And you can see that uh, I show you 2019, 2020's uh, fiscal year's outcome. And then there's this year's budget, what they actually budgeted in February. And then the revised budget that came out yesterday. And then their revised medium term estimates going up to 2022-2023. And what you can see is that revenue takes an enormous hit. It goes from almost 26% of GDP to only 23% of GDP. And then it stays at that lower level. And in fact, 
In the supplementary budget, uh, Teacher Mambuweni made it very clear that it would take seven years for government revenue to return to the sort of levels that prevailed prior to the crisis. Bearing in mind that the levels that prevailed prior to the crisis was honestly not fantastic either. And then, of course, um, budget expenditure goes up. They anticipated uh, that they could cut it, actually, at uh, the time of the budget in February. They wanted to reduce it from 32, well, 33 percent of GDP in 2019-20 to about 33 percent, slightly lower. And that's not going to happen now because the reality is we have this virus that is spreading across the country. We are now running at a transmission rate of new cases. Your sort of five-day average, moving average of new cases amounting to about 5,000 a day. We are now at over 100,000 confirmed cases. That number is very scary. It is often quite deceptive because in Africa so far, uh, we've actually got a very high uh, recovery rate of around 55%. So people do recover. We have a very large number of asymptomatic cases in South Africa. That seems to be the pattern all over Africa. The World Health Organization puts that down to the fact that Africa has a very young population. And as you know, the young, unlike me, are actually quite immune to this particular virus. And we have a very low death rate or mortality rate of only about 2% where the global average is around five, six percent. So it is bad, but they are also underneath this threat, a sign of South Africa's resilience or the, the population's resilience to this virus. The bottom line, though, is that they have no choice but to deal with it. And so revenue goes up and then they make a concerted effort, as you can see, in the following two years to bring revenue down. Debt service cost rises and it just continues to rise. Why? Because of the hippo's jaws widening, you're borrowing more. So the amount that you need to pay just to service your existing debt will continue to rise. And, you know, by the time we get to 2023, 300 billion rand will simply go uh, to interest on debt. And that means you've got a lot less money available to spend on things that matter to this economy and that advances our ability to move forward and strengthens us as a society and all the things like building infrastructure, improving your education system, to a large extent that just gets swamped by uh, you having to service your interest. And when they talk about essentially a sovereign debt crisis, that is what they're talking about. That explosion in debt service cost to the point where it really crowds out all other spending priorities. And what does that mean? It means that we live with a monster of a budget deficit. Your main budget deficit, which is the deficit simply at national government level, that now balloons, it goes from their estimate in February, which was that they would run a deficit of 6.8% of GDP, it now jumps to 14.6% of GDP. It really is terrible. If you include the rest of government, your province, um, provincial governments, your local authorities, then your consolidated budget deficit soars to almost 16% of GDP from 6.8% in February. And it stays 
price high. There is an effort to bring it down. You can see 2021-22, they want to take it down quite substantially to 9.3% of GDP and ultimately down to 7.7% of GDP. But it essentially means that we are living for the next three years on the cliff's edge. We are living with massive budget deficit projections. And can you see the difference between the main budget balance and the primary balance? The difference there is simply that in the primary balance, you exclude debt service cost. So in the primary balance, if they manage to bring the main budget balance down to 7.7% by 2022-2023, if they exclude debt service cost, we will have a primary balance of less than 3% of GDP. Okay, so that just shows you what a battle debt has become. And that's what this budget is all about. It is about debt. So how did we get here? As I said to you before, it's simply a function of GDP now. This year shrinking by around 7%. Nobody's really certain whether we're going to hit 7%. Let me just tell you, there's no economic model that can, um, with any accuracy, accuracy, forecast the impact of COVID-19. The magnitudes are just, it, it just makes your residuals unstable. It just throws your whole models out. So you actually have to use human judgment. There's very few other means that you can draw on to try and sort of qualify what is happening here. And from tax revenues perspective, you can see that implosion. We've had shortfalls in, in, in taxes for quite some time, almost every fiscal year since 2014-2015. Why? For the same reason, growth fell short of expectations and expenditure remained quite sticky at high levels. And now we have a whopper of tax revenue falling short by 304 billion rand this fiscal year. And it really isn't looking good. This is value added tax. This is quite a neat graph that National Treasury made available to us. Uh, it shows you uh, for the different fiscal years, 2017, 18 and 19, what value added tax collection did in January, February, March, all the way through to December. And if you look at the red line, that is 2020 so far. It is honestly frightening. So there is actually downside to that horrific revenue figures. It could actually even be lower than they're currently projecting. And the same with pay as you earn, because as the economy went into lockdown, companies had a situation where they had to carry all of this cost, but they had no revenue coming in, um, no income coming in. Many companies put individuals um, basically on non-paid leave, others retrenched, others tried to reduce wages. And the outcome of that, of course, is that you have this situation where uh, income starts to fall. So it really, really doesn't look good for taxes at this point. And then on the expenditure side, that's where all the pressure is now. You've not got revenue coming in. So your only option really as government is to reevaluate all your expenditure. Plus, you've got this national health emergency you have to deal with. So what National Treasury said is they said, OK, let's start from scratch. Let's see, uh, look at the share of each of your major functions in, in government. What share of uh, expenditure do they currently get? And let's rearrange that. And that's exactly what they did. So um, 
there were no sacred cows, absolutely no sacred cows. They kind of started from scratch. They cut the amount they gave to learning and culture. They increased the amount they gave to social development. What is that? That is really just government transfers, as I'll show you in the next few slides, to provide some income support to individuals during this COVID-19 crisis and during the lockdown. So that's literally what we're talking about in this situation. Uh, so those are the special COVID grants, the increase in the child welfare grant, and um, those are also coming through on your social development side. And then obviously gave a little bit more to health Debt service costs, very little they can do about that. You have to honor your agreements. They try to reduce it by changing the composition of their debt so that they can try and reduce the interest they pay on their debt. And then everything else they cut the share of. So what does that mean if we look at it in percentage terms? From a functional perspective, basically they give more for social welfare, they give more for health, but everybody else gets a cut. That's it. So they're reducing the allocations to virtually every other service out there. If you look at it from an economic classification, you can see transfer payments increases this year by 2.3%, and then everything else is reduced. Payments on capital assets, that's always what happens. You basically have to cut your fixed investment, and that's a sad thing because fixed investment is what adds to your potential growth rate as an economy and allows you to grow faster and employ more people and create more taxpayers in the years to come. But unfortunately, given the the hole we're in, the corner we're in, uh, there's not much choice as far as that's concerned. Then goods and services by government has also been reduced. And then the big controversial one is that Tito Mbueni and National Treasury basically doubled down on cutting the public sector wage bill. In February, the whole aim was just to slow the growth in the public sector wage bill. Now the aim is to actually cut it. So some people may want to may want it, uh, to have seen a much bigger contraction, but this is historic. We have never had compensation of employees actually being reduced by 1.3%. So bear that in mind. Nonetheless, with all of that effort, with all of that pain, you still sit with this sort of situation. The outcome is simply that your debt soars. That's it. This is public sector debt. This is your gross loan debt as a percentage of GDP. And in the supplementary budget announced yesterday, Tito Mbueni presented two paths or two scenarios. One where government simply does nothing, sit back and just continue to spend at the rate they were spending, leave the economy, continue along this sort of really contradictory policy path where you say one thing and then you do another thing. And under those sorts of circumstances, growth continues to fade. Uh, your recovery really falls dramatically short of expectations and your debt climbs at a rapid rate. And on the scenario where they just do nothing, debt eventually climbs to 140% of GDP. Of course, long before we get to that 140% of GDP, we would probably have fallen into a sovereign debt crisis where government either defaults or the market simply refuses to offer us any finance as happened to Greece during their sovereign debt crisis. 
Okay, so uh, the path they've rather chosen is where you live with very high debt burdens. In fact, it climbs to a peak of 87.4% in 2023-2024, and then you start to reduce it gradually over the following years. And the only way you do that, as government, as Tito Mawini put it, is by long-term expenditure constraint, that's the bottom line here, over an extended period, they are going to have to count their pennies, make sure no money is wasted, and really cut government spending. Improving your revenues, in other words, getting more from taxes, either by improving the efficiency of collection, eliminating fraud and tax evasion, and ultimately also, yes, not this year, but it's very clearly stated in the budget, taxes will go up. We don't know what mix they will settle for, but we know we are facing over the next two, next decade probably, a situation of higher taxes. And then hopefully also boost economic growth in order to deal with this problem. So that is uh, what it looks like. So how are they gonna finance this explosion in debt? Well, Really, they're going to draw on every avenue available to them. It really is a, a desperate situation they find themselves in. And you can see uh, what's essentially going to happen this year is they're going to raise 97.7 billion more from short-term loans. Okay, so that's not really what you ideally want to do. But they are finding in the market that there is no demand uh, for government debt at maturities of 10 years and over. And they have wanted to restructure their debt, obviously, so that they have a greater portion of their funding raised at the longer end of the curve, because that makes sense, it's a sensible thing to do. But if there's no liquidity in that segment of the market, if there's no demand, you have very little choice but to switch to the shorter end. So that's exactly what they've done. And then for long-term loans, they're going to raise a, a whopping additional on top of what they already announced in February, an additional 151 billion rand in government bonds. So that's going to be their additional issuance above what they already announced in February this year. So it's enormous. There's no denying that. And again, all of their issuance is going to be concentrated at um, the far, basically the seven to 10 year maturities. Why? Because that's where the liquidity is. That's where the demand is coming through. Nobody wants to hold South African debt at 10 years and over. And they were issuing at around 15 years, but they found that demand there was simply too weak. So now they're going to focus on that five, of that seven to 10 year range. And then, of course, they are going to be taking IMF funding. They will be getting some funding from the BRICS Bank. And uh, basically, that means that foreign funding will go up by an additional uh, 16 billion rand over and above the amount they already undertook in February. Okay, so the dilemma here is that, you know, South Africa faces one of the steepest yield curves in the emerging market universe at the moment. And this graph tries to illustrate it. What we've seen is that the Reserve Bank, obviously, as the economy deteriorated and global oil prices imploded and inflation came down, they cut interest rates. 
in order A, to stimulate the economy, and also B, because they didn't have to worry about inflation. So they cut interest rates by 275 basis points since the beginning of the year. Among the emerging market nations listed here, you can see South Africa has undertaken some of the most uh, significant cuts on the short-term end of the curve. We have had quite a sharp decline. But at the same time, where everybody else has even have seen sufficient demand for the longer end of their curve, and they've actually seen um, the long end of the curve also decline. In our case, at the long end of the curve, you've actually seen yields increase. So that shows you how steep that curve is. Now, that means two things. If global risk appetite were to return, right? If it were to return, then obviously, it means South Africa does offer a very attractive yield. So there is an opportunity there, but the risks are enormous. And what we're seeing at the moment is that foreigners are weary of South Africa. And we see that in your free uh, CDS spreads. Here you go. I have got uh, South Africa's free year credit default spread, Brazil, Turkey and Russia spread over US spreads. And you see that uh, Turkey, certainly the market is pricing in a huge risks into Turkey. So risk perceptions towards Turkey has deteriorated dramatically. But South Africa is actually perceived to be more risky than both Brazil and Russia. Okay, so Russia, I can kind of imagine, even though it has many, many flaws, among others, it's not really a democracy. And I'm sure corruption is very, very rife. But they have oil, um, they have a better fiscal position than we do, uh, they have more foreign exchange than we do, so you can kind of understand where that comes from, but that South Africa is considered more risky than Brazil, that is quite a disturbing picture coming out of, uh, you know, the markets at the moment. And so what we've seen is that foreigners have not returned to the South African market. Even now, as global risk appetites are normalizing, as we are seeing economies across the world opening up, listen, global risk appetite is extremely volatile. It's sort of gyrating between risk on, risk off, risk on, risk off, and it's all driven by the COVID-19 numbers coming in all over the world. If those numbers are bad, it's risk off, or if they are good, it's risk on. And it's also driven by really the economic data coming in from all over the world. If they see good numbers that suggest that we'll have more of a V-shaped, um, uh, you know, recession than a, a you know a U-shaped or W-shaped, then there's risk on. If you get a set of bad numbers, then there's risk off. So the situation is very fluid. Nonetheless, uh, we have seen capital return to emerging markets. It is offering value across the globe. But in the case of South Africa, it's certainly not been a wave. It's not been the sort of waves we've seen during all previous crises. If you look here at net foreign purchases of South African bonds and equities, you can see foreigners have been selling out of the equity market for quite some time. It's really the bond market where they've been dabbling from, you know, whenever there's risk on, they climb back into South Africa to get the higher yield. When it's risk off, they, they sell out. And you can see here's the COVID-19 sellout and the panic that came with that. 
And if you use a magnifying glass, you can see here, there's a little bit of an uptick. So there are some foreign buying coming back, but it's not the wave we've seen in the past. And that, of course, is why the RAND has improved a little bit and so forth. And the reason for this is very simple. They are weary of South Africa's government debt situation. They understand we face an absolutely, you know, absolutely enormous uphill battle here. And the question is, will we be able to deal with it without defaults in the future, without a situation where you either run out of your ability to raise funds and, and really the market just simply doesn't want to finance you anymore. And that risk is being calculated in and discounted at the longer end of the curve. And that is what we're seeing, why there's so little demand. So all the foreign money that has come in, our dealing room tells us that it's mainly gone into government bonds, but it's gone into that same little slot where the Reserve Bank is buying, where the domestic market is buying, and also, obviously, where government now wants to increase its issuance, and that is that 7 to 10-year spot on um, the yield curve. So government has to deal with this debt burden. Now, obviously, they can't reverse it. It's going to continue climbing. This is not something that can be done overnight. This is going to require tremendous political will. It is also going to require political cohesion. In other words, all being on the same side, working towards the same goal. Everyone in government, every minister, every political party. And it's going to require some societal buy-in. Business has to buy in. Labor unions, very importantly, has to buy in. Society at large has to join into this effort. Because if not, we will fall off the fiscal cliff, as they put it. So this is the plan. Uh, that Tito presented. He said, okay, they're going to try and boost revenue. They're going to undertake measures firstly to try and boost long-term growth. As I will state a little bit later, that is probably the most important thing. That's the only way we're going to get out of this problem. We have to grow out of it. And there's a lot of things wrong with the South African economy that we would need to fix before we can grow out of this problem. But on the, the stuff government has direct control over, they're going to try and improve tax collection through greater enforcement. So I think they're going to get tough with us. They're going to focus on international taxes, especially those using transfer pr pricing to reduce their tax burden. They're going to try and eliminate syndicated fraud on battery funds and import valuations. This is a worrying bit. They are now going to start using third-party data to find non-compliant taxpayers not uh, something that we necessarily uh, feel is the right thing to do, but that is what they're going to do. They're going to improve collections of all the debt owed and to the fiscal There will be no tax hikes, but as I said, they will be announcing additional tax measures over the next two uh, to three years. And they said they will um, work at reforming SOEs. We've heard this story before, of course, to limit their reliance on the public funds. So this is how they want to hope boost revenue. What are they going to do on the expenditure side? They're going to be removing funds from underspend uh, that are underspend uh, mainly because of the lockdown. They're going to suspend allocations to capital and other departmental projects that are not considered urgent. They're going to suspend 
really allocations for programs with poor performance history, something they should have done ages ago, but they're going to do that now, and they've already started. Obviously, this year, and for however long it takes, funds will be directed towards the COVID-19 effort. But very importantly, they're going to cut the public sector wage bill, as I said before, and then they are going to start developing a process of zero budgeting, where every single year you start from scratch. No allocation can be assumed. No allocation can just be expected. You have to motivate it. So that is the aim. They're going to press ahead with that. Will it work? Well, the only way we're going to get out of this hole, really, is if we see faster economic growth and greater job creation. And that very simply means is that you've got to create a legislative and regulatory environment that is actually supportive of business, that doesn't put obstacles and costs all over business. And at the moment, we don't have that sort of environment. We also don't have power. So you have to deal with the ESCOM issue. You have to deal with the lack of uh, power capacity in this economy. And what National Treasury proposes, but they provided no details or timelines on whether these things have been adopted or accepted, but what they proposed was to lower the cost of doing business, reduce red tape dramatically, in other words, deal with that regulatory burden that have become truly onerous. And um, they've also proposed that you support industries with high job creation, like agriculture, like tourism, and you put the infrastructure in place to really have an enormous booming tourism industry and a really efficient agricultural sector. They also want to facilitate regional trade. We know nothing's happening on that score yet anyway. They want to reduce the skills deficit by attracting skills, Im skilled immigrants. Of course, this is a very, very controversial issue within South Africa. We've had waves of xenophobic attacks. So again, a very controversial proposal, but very necessary. They want to improve skills framework through the reforms to basic education and post-school training. And then very importantly, they state SOEs have to be reformed. End of the story. Finalize your electricity plan, unbundle ESCOM, get, get a move on with it, open your energy markets to private players, modernize your port and rail infrastructure, and license spectrum. Okay. This is all good stuff. No one can argue with that. It would make us a more productive, more efficient economy, and one in which actually higher levels of growth and job creation could actually be achieved. The problem is there is just no record of actually delivering on these promises. It's going to be an uphill battle. I have no doubt that Treasury is determined, but they need to get all the politicians, all the ministers, all the departments, all the provinces, all the local authorities to buy into this effort. They've got to get rid of the corruption. They've got to get rid of the vested interest. And they have to award tenders to those who are most efficient in producing the actual object of the tender, whether it be a power plant, whether it be data capacity or infrastructure. And throughout this, the continued spending constraint that government itself will have to apply will be very difficult in a country with high unemployment and high levels of inequality and very powerful unions. Already yesterday, the unions have warned that they are ready for this battle and they will not accept the cut 
and public sector pay. So nothing is determined, nothing is clear, but honestly, they have taken a very bad situation and the content they are suggesting, that is the correct path to follow. Now we're simply going to have to wait and see whether they can actually do that. Okay, so that, folks, that's my story. I have nothing more to add, so I'll take any questions now. I found that incredibly interesting, and I like the way you, the shock and awe that was provided for us yesterday by the minister, you've reiterated that in the earlier slides, but at the end there provided a, a glimmer of hope for us in that if they can get these measures through, then it might be a more optimistic scenario. If you have some time for questions, we have had a lot and some really good, interesting questions. And, and I think it's on what everybody's trying to think of or, or make sense of. But let me let me just get into a couple of questions. I'll see how, how long we can go on for. And I'll kick off with, there's been a lot of questions about the impact on investments, obviously, given the audience that we have here today. So can we start just with your expectation on repo rates or the interest rate view um, that you may have from, from here? Has it changed? Okay, so, you know, came when we were uh, in May, we basically said, listen, we are entering, you know, probably the worst economic recession we have seen ever on record. Uh, worse than the Great Depression, worse than the global financial crisis, worse than, you know, the oil crises of the 1980s, worse than we have ever seen before. A contraction of minus 7% on average is out there. There are even some forecasts suggesting this economy con can contract by around 16% this year. So given that, uh, and the fact that inflation at this point remains contained, the RAND has pulled back. Um, it's not been a convincing pullback. As I said, we need that wave of foreign buying to return. We need the carry trade, really, globally, to be revived. The circumstances are there for that to be a possibility. You've got your low-risk countries, your low-interest rate countries, they have slashed their interest rates to near zero. So the cost of borrowing for those in the carry trade is very low. And then you've got very high interest rates in most of the emerging markets. And as I've said, South Africa is one of the highest yields out there on offer in the emerging market universe. So the circumstances is therefore the recovery in the carry trade, but we haven't seen it come through in any convincing way yet. So there's still a lot of risk aversion uh, globally. So from our perspective, uh, you know, the bottom line here from the Reserve Bank in May, is we said, well, you know what, there's probably space for another 100 basis point cut in interest rates. And if you're going to cut rates, front loaded rather than wait with it. Instead, uh, what we got was we were kind of right and kind of wrong. If we were wrong and wrong, that would be a disaster. But we were kind of right and we were kind of wrong. The Reserve Bank acknowledged based on their model, just like ours, suggested that there was another 100 basis points in it in terms of a rate reduction. But in the end, they decided only to go with a 50 basis point cut. And in fact, they didn't even among themselves debate the possibility of a 100 basis point cut, even though their model suggested it. They were, it was a split vote. Some only wanted 25 basis points, others wanted 50. So the bottom line is they settled with 50. Now we've changed our forecast. We still think they can cut by another 50 basis points and it won't 
cause any financial instability um, in our view, but they seem very reluctant to do that. And what we've noticed, uh, and in conversations with them since, they've indicated they're very worried about the yield curve and they feel that their actions at the short end is actually steepening the curve more than it is actually helping to flatten the curve. So that's the first point they listed. And even though we think inflation will not be a concern over the next three years, they don't seem to be so convinced about that. They think that oil prices will obviously recover. Well, we've seen that start to some extent. They also feel that going forward, electricity and water tariffs will be a source of inflation. And they, they believe that the RAND is intrinsically more vulnerable. You know, current circumstances might be such that the RAND is stabilized a little bit. But ultimately, they believe it is intrinsically more vulnerable because of the fiscal situation I have just explained to you. So as a result of that, they don't seem to be convinced that inflation is, in fact, not an issue. So that's a worry. And then the third thing they've highlighted is that um, they're not comfortable with negative real rates. And if they cut further, they will go into negative real rates, depending on how you define it. So because of that reluctance I picked up, especially from the governor, we've decided we just keep rates flat and we'd stress that there might very well still be the possibility of another 50 basis point cut. If it's going to happen, it might happen at 25-25 in the space of two cuts maybe, but it will be before the end of this year. I don't think the Reserve Bank will be wanting to cut rates next year at all. All right, so that is our view. Our view is flat, just be based purely on their hesitancy, not because in, in, in theory you cannot cut rates further, but based on the hesitancy of the Monetary Policy Committee and the governor especially. And um, then, of course, there's the risk of another 50 in the short term to the downside. Great. Thank you very much, Nikki. But what I think I'll do, I'll, I'll wind it up there if you don't mind. I think You've yep. given us a lot of food for thought and a lot of insight that was over and above what we ha had yesterday and what we could interpret from what we were told yesterday. So thank you very much. I really appreciate you joining us today. And to everybody else who joined, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for listening attentively. Uh, please contact us if you have any questions on the, on the content from today. On that note, thanks to Nikki. Thank you to everyone. And please join us again for future sessions of Nev Group Investments Insights. Goodbye. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act. Negroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit negroupinvestments.co.za.